When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that follows the money behind the beautiful game, which frankly at the moment has been a bit like hide and seek. Kieran's following the money. I'm Kevin Day and I'm joined by football finance expert at Liverpool University, Kieran Magoo. Which is, uh, I presume our producer was in a hurry typing because that's, that's what he's put. I'm joined by Kieran Magoo, M A G U. So welcome, Mr. Thank Magoo. you very much. I've been called far worse. Yes, you have. Um, well, we won't be calling you, I won't be calling you any names on the pod now for a reason you'll just be able to find out. And Kieran won't be swearing so much either because he's been told off by a new listener, which is Kieran's mum. Uh, is listening to us over there in, in lovely County Mayo. Uh, and Kieran's mum's other note is that she wants to hear more from me on the pod. Um, fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of this actual <laughs> pod. But, uh, but uh, hello, Kieran's mum. Um, I, I will keep an eye on the swearing, and um, I've pleaded with him to keep some of the stories out of future pods. <laughs> if you, you, Kieran's mum doesn't need to know about the special cuddles. But, um, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful County Mayo. Um, now, it's it's Monday today, uh, I believe. Um, uh, to be perfectly honest, if you hadn't tweeted that we were about to record the pod, I'd, have been, I'd still be in the kitchen drinking tea, as I'd forgotten it was Sunday. Uh, so it is Monday, we're recording on Sunday, but it's Monday today. Um, so we're all about your questions, it's questions day today, but we'll also hear um, from the Chief Executive of Luton Town, Gary Sweet, who sat down with uh, Kieran safely from a distance, of course, on Thursday night. Um, I presume club chief execs enjoy talking to you, Kieran, don't they? A language you understand, which presumably why I wasn't asked to join in this particular Zoom. Uh, he, he was very candid. Um, and then uh, 12 hours later, he went and sacked the manager. Yes. Oh, did he? <laughs> so, so, so I, don't, I don't know whether it was something I'd said. I hope not. I hope not for, for Graham Jones's PR. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, OK, well, I'll, I'll listen to the interview like everybody with you and then find out if there are any subconscious clues like sack the manager played backwards <laughs> um <laughs> let's we're, a couple of coronavirus updates before we get into the questions um first coronavirus update uh, from kieran and i is please don't inject bleach or light into any of your veins but no matter what a particular level of world leaders asked you to do this week avoid that that's our little take that one from us free that tip uh, I still the idea of injecting light. I just, I, I'm, maybe he's working on levels we don't understand. Um, the Dutch league has now been cancelled. The Belgian league was first to go. The Dutch league has followed. It's the era division. I know you've been practicing the pronunciation, but it's the, it's 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 a bigger league. It's probably the first of the major European leagues to make this decision. Yes, it's followed on from Belgium and now the Eredivisie, uh, I believe, is that correct? Yeah. Um, and what they've effectively said is that there's no champions and there's no relegation. Um, and this has caused um, some ructions uh, in respect of the second division of the Eredivisie um, because the, I've forgotten the name of the side, but I think they were 11 points ahead. So, so they're, mm. they they were pretty sore, but they're pretty sore in a very phlegmatic Dutch way. Um, they say, well, this is this is sad, but you know, ultimately, it's a public health issue, and you know, we're just in the entertainment industry. Um, they have allocated the Champions League places to the top two teams in the division, and and similar for Europa League, with, with no no complications and relatively little fuss as well. Yeah, the Dutch are. Uh... A very laid-back nation, aren't they, for very many reasons. Uh, are, is their league constituted like ours? I mean, will they be... Does it belong to the clubs that are in that league? Will all the, the clubs in the Eredivisie have voted on this or, or do, do they have a formal... No, no, structure? It, it, was a, it was a democratic decision. Um, and okay. what happens is that they were due to have a meeting, actually, uh, two or three weeks ago, which I was supposed to be talking myself. 
um, with, with regards to the finances of uh, European football. Um, and clearly matters have accelerated since then. Um, the, the Dutch government has said there's no chance of large-scale public meetings taking place until at least September. Um, and under those circumstances, they, they've just said, well, you know, we, we can't finish the season. Let's Let's just call the whole thing off. Is this contrary to UEFA's advice, remind me? Well, UEFA have effectively delegated the decisions to individual countries. Um, And they said, in an ideal world, we want... Um, we want matches to be finished, but we are prepared to listen to individual countries making decisions. Um, and unless they do anything which is particularly crazy, we'll the chances are we'll simply back them. For what we're both hearing, I believe there's there's still a complete determination to complete fixtures here in England, um, and we've finally had what we believed confirmed that the, the PL. And the AFL, the EFL even, have been meeting government on a, a regular basis to, to try and resolve the issue of unfinished games, haven't they? Yes, uh, I think the government has these five tests um, and, and it's fairly clear that uh, there has to be prioritisation for um, you know, healthcare workers and, and people working on the front line in terms yep. of access to testing. Um, it has been estimated that it could take up to 100,000 tests for the remaining EFL games to be completed. That was in one of the papers. So you know, clearly there, there would be a very big uh, cost involved. Um, but compared to the loss of TV money and compared to the loss of revenue from promotion and the potential lawsuits, it's something which they can bear. Um, in, in terms of how clubs are going to be promoted... Clearly, no decision has been made as yet, and I think that's, yeah. that is the correct decision. There's various things being thrown into the fire, um, such as just clubs just being promoted and nobody being relegated. Um, and also, there's the, the idea of a mini-playoff system where the top yeah. eight teams in each of uh, the championship, League One and League Two, um, go into a playoff competition. So the first would play eighth, second would play seventh, and so on. And, and then that would effectively form a knockout. Um, and that's if matches can't take place uh, in terms of uh, fulfilling the remaining nine fixtures and then potentially three off three playoff games for the clubs involved. So that would be a lot quicker. But that would only be the case if we are making no progress with regards to t- matches taking place behind closed doors. Yeah, and presumably we touched on this briefly before, Kieran. In, in the Premier League, for example, it, it will take two games tops for Liverpool to become champions. And the chances are that the bottom three teams could be relegated within, say, five or six rounds. So if you then took the imaginative decision to spread the rest of the prize money between the, the clubs you know, fourth down, there's no reason why you can't just play enough games to resolve the outstanding issues rather than all the games to finish the season, is there really? There, there is that, but I think we need, from an integrity point of view, we need some clarity in advance because otherwise, if uh, if if the club's in the middle of the division, so yeah, we're talking you know, Burnley, Palace, West Ham, well, not West yeah, Ham, yeah. but Burnley, Palace and so on, if, if they know that... They're going to get a set amount of money. Um, and at present, remember, you are getting an extra £2.5 million per place. So that, that does keep... It certainly keeps the, the finance director and the chief executive excited. Um, and, and, and players are on bonuses based on final league positions. So if they know that all the money is just going to be split evenly between, say, 4th and 17th, um, that might cause issues once you know that actually we've got nothing to play for, and then you are playing some of the bottom six. So you, you're you're away to Bournemouth or Villa. Are you are you going to bust a gut during those matches? Um, so un- until we get some form of certainty, I I, I don't think it would work um, to have a, a season where we effectively say give the title to Liverpool. They deserve it, as we know, um, without matches taking place to the full. Yeah, I, I know your answer to that question, and the reason I asked is because I, I wanted to hear you, your mother to hear you use the word integrity, which is that be my my point is that once say say you play six rounds yeah. of games, and I'm talking about safety and and about getting the next season started. If if after six rounds of games, Liverpool are champions and the bottom three are relegated, my point is then is there any point playing the final three round of games, which essentially will only be to to decide whether Palace get two and a half million quid more than 
than West Ham. And then my point is then once it's all decided, then surely the clubs can say, look, there's, there's, we're, we're still taking risks with stewards, with police, with match announcers, with, with players, etc. So now all the issues are done. Let's just spread that prize money, split that. that that's my point. Not, not that you say that only the, the bottom three or the bottom five play the games necessary, but you play as many games as you need. And once it's decided, then you can stop and start preparing for next yeah, season. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's a very fair comment. But remember, we've also got Champions League places to take into consideration. Yeah. And I suspect there could be a bit of a bun fight. Um, not only because the fact that we don't know whether the side finishing fourth or fifth will be our final Champions League uh, uh, entrant. Um, and, and there's quite a scramble for fifth place. But yeah, I, I agree with you in principle, if we know that there's no potential further movement for Champions League, Europa League, promotion relegation, or rather champion relegation, then just then just finish playing football. You know, you're, you're absolutely mm. right. Um, we shouldn't be putting people at risk. Uh, I, I thought Gary Neville's comments during the week uh, were very good in the sense that if if it's not going to be uh, if it's not going to be fit and proper for fans to attend matches because of a public health risk, I as an employer have a responsibility towards my staff, including the players, to not put them at risk from a health perspective. And therefore, surely mm. I can't go out and let let them play football. Yeah, no, it's a very good. I mean, I think that's a question a lot of people have asked. It's you can social distance in the ground. Of course you can. For me, you just, it's an empty ground. You know, you, you move the dugouts a few, a few metres away from each other, but football's a contact sport. So as you say, and, and people get hurt, people get cut. So we're still not entirely sure how this thing gets in, it gets spread. So Gary Neville, I reluctantly concede, that makes a very fair point. Um, so let's get on to the questions because we do have some good questions this week. Um, now, the first question pretty much cuts to the heart of what we've been talking about. We spent the last two weeks talking about various Premier League clubs, Champions League uh, Championship clubs and uh, wage cuts, players taking 10%, 12.5% wage cuts. John Burr has simply asked, how does how does this work? How does it work in practice? You, uh, will money be deducted at source? Will players be paid and then asked to give some back? What's... What's the practical side of, of the, the wage Well, cut? what would happen is that when the payroll run is done, um, and remember, that's taking place uh, this week. You know, players will be paid you know, in, in the next few days, which is why so many clubs are scrambling around trying to sort out deals at present. All that you will do is just literally multiply each wage packet by 80%. 87.5% and so on, and the system will automatically churn out the, the gross and the net and so on. Now, if the money is being furloughed, um, you'll have to do a separate calculation for that, but you know, that will just be run on, on, a, on, a, on a payroll system. So it, it, it'll be, it's, it's, just a, it's just spreadsheet fun and games, um, and clearly the player will then get his payslip um, sometime later this week with, with the revised sum involved. Everything's spreadsheet fun and games to you, isn't it? Yes. Uh, spreadsheet fun and games will be the name of your annual when it comes out. Viz has got the Profanosaurus, Kieran Maguire's spreadsheet fun and games. So uh, HMRC will automatically uh, be informed of this via the payroll system. That, that's right. So what will happen is, as, as far as the first team squad and, of course, all of the other members of staff are concerned, you work out your gross payroll cost, how much of that goes as a deduction. And some of the issues which have been raised by the PFA are actually quite valid if you have owners of clubs such as Chelsea or Manchester City who are willing to bankroll the players um, during the pandemic, the only losers here are HMRC because the owners are quite happy to fund it. Um, the players are, of course, more than happy to receive their full wage. Uh, and So what what are we doing this for? Is it just to make people feel slightly better about themselves who are not professional footballers? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a, exactly. It's a PR exercise to get the tabloids off their back, for unfortunately. Um, as a freelancer, I really miss the days of getting that monthly payslip. But I also really like the idea of you, you your suggestion, which, God bless you, that Premier League footballers are still looking at their payslip. <laughs> really, I like, I like David Silver. Going, What's Hang on a second. Where's, where's that deduction come from? That's <laughs> really? hilarious. Um, Jack Painter is our next question. Good name. Now, this is a very good question, Jack, actually, and it, it, it kind of refers to chaos theory in, in a strange sort of way. A, f- a few years ago, you may recall, there, were, there was a lot of talk about restructuring the league system and people saying it's it's not quite working the way it was. And one of those big suggestions was that we had the Premier League and then four divisions of 20 below that. So the National League would disappear. You'd have four divisions 
uh, in the league, below the Premier League. And, and Jack says maybe now this is the time, out of this chaos, it, perhaps this is the time to think outside the box and maybe use this as an opportunity to say, well, we could restructure the league out of this. Does he have a point? Um, I, I think restructuring the league is certainly something worthwhile discussing. Um, in, in terms of a 20-team league... Um, if I if I went to the EFL today and say, hey, guys, presently you're playing 46 times a year and you've got the Carabao Cup and the FA Cup. Um, by the way, the Carabao Cup's going to be binned because it is going to be binned. Yeah, it just hasn't been confirmed. Um, and I'm going to reduce your number of league matches to 38 a year. But you're, al- you're already losing money and I'm going to reduce the number of paydays by eight a year minimum. That, 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 it, it's a non-starter. Um the clubs in the Premier League, whilst the Premier League has fewer clubs than the, the EFL, remember, you know, seven, seven of the Premier League clubs are playing in Champions League and Europa League as well. They tend to go further in the cup competitions than the EFL clubs. So actually, they, they quite often end up playing more fixtures than, than the EFL clubs anyway. The, the EFL clubs uh, are more dependent upon match day income than the Premier League. So to take away four home matches from each of them, it simply is a non-starter. And, and that's excluding the pandemic. You, know, you throw the pandemic into the equation yeah, yeah. where the clubs are potentially playing matches, having to pay out wages and getting no money coming in. Um, I, I think uh, whilst there's always a case for looking at football from a you know, holistic point of view, um, uh, this this one wouldn't work. You talk about the Carabao Cup. There, do you think this is the end of the line for the Carabao Cup? Full stop. Not just the next couple of seasons, because also there's talk of the the new European, well, essentially Carabao Cup competition, isn't it? So, I presume that's going to be put on the back burner for a while as well. Is I, it? I think the no the the Europa Cup League or whatever or the Europa Trophy or whatever they're going to call it. I think that's uh, they are very keen to start that. <laughs> Um, oh, okay. Because that will allow, if you think about that, UEFA has got fifty-five member member associations. Um, that will provide income for some of those smaller countries. So the you know, the likes of Slovakia, the likes okay. of Albania, who who don't normally have sides who are necessarily good enough to get into you know the the, the qualifying or the, the, the group stages of uh, Champions League and Europa League. This will provide them with an, an extra revenue stream. Um, the, the reason why um, I'm suspicious about the Carabao Cup is that I, I have heard one or two stories from within the game, um, but also if we uh, if, if we do move to an expanded Champions League, which is going to involve twelve group games, you simply can't fix, fit, fit things in in the existing fix, in the existing calendar. I would have thought for the next two or three seasons at least there'd be some lack of confidence about travelling abroad on Massa, wouldn't there? Yes, if we if we can't travel twelve times a year, you can't travel six times a year. So it's I think it's have to be an all or nothing in terms of playing matches in Europe. Okay, now our our, our next question comes from Glenn Entwistle. Now Glenn Entwistle was a Blackburn fan, and and I don't know why I was so perversely delighted that somebody called Entwistle supported a Lancashire team. It just seemed right somehow. Um, I feel that I should apologise to Glenn right from the top here because Glenn basically says we've unearthed in him a previously unknown fascination for football finances, basically. And he spent, <laughs> he rather plaintively says that he spent Easter Sunday creating his own recent history of Blackburn's financial accounts. I, Glenn, I, I'm so sorry, Glenn. Rasputin in, in the corner of my screen is laughing, chuckling away there because he's, he's, lured, he's lured another one into his web of deceit. But I oh am, boy. Anyway... Um, you are like the child catcher, aren't you? You, really, you just <laughs> wander around with a net spotting vulnerable young men and women as they come into the accountancy club. Now, Glenn's question is, is, a, is a good one because, again, we've talked a lot. You've told us a lot, Kieran, about um, what sustainable wages aren't. You've always given us a good examples. So Glenn's question is, for a championship club, what is a proper sustainable wage as a percentage of turnover? Presumably anything below 100%, but, there, of course, there are other costs to offset against that so you know you told us recently about reading i think of for every hundred pound coming in spending 137 pounds on on player wages so glenn's question simply is what what should the figure be well, well i think reading were actually 224 that they've now stolen the uh the the guinness book of records uh 
championship from Harry Redknapp, and that's quite an achievement. Um, so I shall I shall leave the the producer and the lawyer to work out whether or not we can put that in. But I'm happy with it. I'm perfectly happy with yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's, per- it's perfectly true. It, it, Harry Redknapp and Birmingham City did have the the previous record. That's all. Okay. Um, yeah. It, it, UEFA um, have what they refer to as a red flag, and they say that if you are spending more than £70 in wages for every £100 of income, um, you're moving on to a bit of a sticky wicket. So, yeah, that's their, that's their guideline. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's, it's not a red line. It's not, a, you, it's not you shouldn't do this, but you should try to keep it below 70 Now, if we take a look at the, the Premier League, um, the Premier League varies between 39 and 85 and then when you move into the championship, the average is 107. So it, it's just it's just sheer lunacy in that particular division. Um, and clearly, Glenn's Glenn's comments are that you know Blackburn are around about 140, 150 from what I recall, um, and that was in both League One and the Championship last season. So you can see his cause for concern. And no doubt he's done. He's crunched the numbers himself. Uh, if, if, he, if, he, if he'd emailed me, I've, I've got I've got the history of Blackburn. I've got the history of everybody, as you probably know. Um, I could have sent him and saved him. He could have spent the, he could have spent Easter Sunday eating, eating Easter eggs. Yeah, Glenn, you you can email him, Glenn. You you'll never get out if you do. I'm, I'm just telling you, it's your decision. Fine. <laughs> um, now, our next question is from Roy Nasse. Uh Roy says, "This is the best pod ever." You've made football finance staggeringly interesting. Uh, thank you, Roy. How, how are the girls, by the way? I should, I should, um, in the in interest of fairness, I should point out that I know Roy. Roy's a very old friend of mine. Uh, and Roy is the sort of person who would find you staggeringly interesting, Kieran. I'd say <laughs> uh, he used to look like Donny Osmond when he was young. He thinks he still does. Unfortunately, he was uh, quite a handsome young fella. Took him, he drove me to my first ever gig. Um, uh, and he's got an allotment now. That's how that's how he changed. That is rock and roll. He, he went from being a handsome young man to yeah, it was used, yes, we, we were taking the piss out of him. He's making a fortune out of he's he's the courgettes. He's well, um, <laughs> and also it's very sweet of Roy that, um, knowing me as well as he does, and I've known him since our first day at secondary school. He went through the proper channels with his question. He didn't just text me. He went through the proper channels, and um, Roy understands finance as well. I should point out, um, uh, and also God bless him, just spent six weeks in. Galway looking after his mum. I'll just throw that in for Mrs. Maguire's benefit. That some some boys have been out over looking after their old mums over there. Not that you're a mum's old in any way, shape, or form. I apologise, Mrs. Maguire. Uh, from what I understand, she's quite a forthright woman, so I wouldn't like to call her old in public, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Um, and now, now Roy's question is about dividends, and we're using uh, Daniel Levy as an example here, and Daniel's uh, massive payout recently, which you talked about. And this is an interesting question, basically. Roy said, "How is it? How is it decided? Is it is it a fixed percentage based on on shareholdings, or does Daniel decide how much he gets? Is there a scenario where the shareholders could take all the net profits as a dividend?" Um, in theory, yes, they could, but it would leave them nothing to reinvest in the club. So it. it Club, if you look at all companies, they very rarely take all of the profits of a dividend, um, except, of course, the, the company which bought the bowling ground from West Ham. Oh. Um, they, uh, they bought it for 40 million. They sold it for 60 million. They paid four million pounds in cash. They paid themselves a 16 million pounds dividend and then they just disappeared. Um, so, but yeah, but normally companies will reinvest profits back into the business to allow the business to grow. So there's no set formula um, in the Premier League. Uh, e- even Spurs and, and they are a club that make profits every single year. Um, they don't pay dividends to the owners, and, and the owners effectively are are Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis. Uh, Joe Lewis lives in the Bahamas. He's worth eight billion pounds. He, do- he doesn't need you know three or four million a year from from Spurs. Um, the the only club that's paying a dividend at present is Manchester United um, and they pay around about 22 million pounds a year out of their profits um, to two shareholders of course uh, you know, of, of whom the Glazers are significant beneficiaries. As so often happens can I just take you back to uh, a slight diversion at the start of that question this the company that paid themselves a lot of money um, the Bolin holding company whatever you said they were called um, this is a company that still trades is it? No, no. This this company's now wound itself up. It it literally came from nowhere, bought the bowling, sold the bowling a couple of days later, paid the tax on the deal, paid itself a sixteen million d- dividend, and then said, "Right, we're off." 
And uh, that's all, I hesitate to ask, is that's all okay? Illegally? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's perfectly legitimate. Okay. Um, I suspect we might be getting tweets about that small snippet of information, but we'll we'll carry on for now because it's a Monday, so technically it's a shorter pod. Um, the next question is from a friend of Roy's, funnily enough. Thank you for that question, Roy. The next question is from a friend of Roy, a chap called Kevin Day, basically. <laughs> He's a big fan of your work, Kieran. Um, so you just explained so how the dividends work. For a, a club like Man City uh, and potentially Newcastle in the next few weeks who are owned by some of the richest people in the world, do, do they work on the same dividend basis? Do they, do they Are they paying themselves a dividend or do they just leave it where it is and let it accumulate interest? No, you can only pay a dividend if you have accumulated profits over the years. Right. So if you take a look at Manchester City, they've actually lost you know, seven, eight hundred million since uh, since UAE took over. It's similar with Abramovich and Chelsea. Uh, you know, that's about one and a half billion of losses. So un- until those loss, until you reverse all of those losses and you start actually going in the black, it- it's a bit like if you're overdrawn, you know, a hundred pounds and you put in 20 pounds, you're still overdrawn. So yeah, un- until you move back into having a positive bank balance, you can't pay out a dividend. In terms of Newcastle, um, I would suspect they're going to be losing money under the new owners who will be going full steam ahead uh, within the confines of financial fair play to maximise their losses as far as they're allowed. Because I can't believe that the Saudi authorities have, uh, have, have gone through with this particular deal simply to finish eighth in the Premier League. Thank you for that overdraft example. It's one of the few analogies I can actually relate to on this programme. Um, the Newcastle situation, just one final question on this, and it's, it came up in a conversation I had with my son yesterday, funny enough. We've seen with the current situation that oil prices have been severely, severely affected and negative prices in, in some places. It's, I presume the Saudis are, are immune to Is there a scenario whereby oil prices are affected so much that that might have an impact on the money that Newcastle will have to spend? Or are they simply just way too big, just immune from any financial pinprick? Yeah, um, th- this is this is a short term problem. What the Saudis have effectively done is that they've put money aside for a rainy day from from the profits they've made from previous years. So they they have got you know, trillions, yeah, yeah, beyond billions, as in in their bank account. Um, an extra five or ten million being spent by Newcastle, or even an extra hundred million being spent by Newcastle, simply just doesn't doesn't make doesn't make the meter twitch at all. Right, and also presumably transfer fees are going to be much lower than they were before this anyway so even clubs with who've got less money to play with are going to have it's still going to go as far as it used to isn't it very much it's going to be a buyer's market yeah. this summer um and newcastle i suspect to be one of the beneficiaries if you've got 150 million pounds to spend that might have got you four very good players 12 months ago it could get you six or seven in the, in this transfer window now, we've got a question from David Curd, who's a Liverpool fan. He's one of many people who picked up on something we talked about with a previous West Ham discussion. We talked about the fact that the new stadium uh, has 60,000-odd uh, seats, the new West Ham stadium, um, but 54,000 season ticket holders. And quite a few people pointed out the fact that they, they thought there had to be a percentage of tickets available on a match day. So, for example, before the new stand was even built at Anfield, out of a... Uh, um, a capacity of 42,000, only 28,000 could be season ticket holders because some tickets have to be available on a day for away fans, etc. So have those have those rules changed or did we get it slightly wrong with the West Ham season ticket ratio? No, no, the numbers in, in respect of West Ham are true. Um, as far as uh, away tickets are concerned, the, the home team has to make available the lower of 3,000 or 10% of capacity. So therefore, if you go to Bournemouth, you'll get 1,100 because they've only got 11,000 seater capacity. If you go to West Ham, it will be the lower is is 3,000. Um, the, the reason why West Ham sell 54,000 season tickets is simply because West Ham, West Ham are not a tourist attraction. If you if you compare them to Liverpool, the reason why Liverpool only have twenty seven thousand season tickets out of a capacity of fifty four thousand is they have a membership scheme. So I think you have to go and pay twenty five or thirty quid to be a member, and then twice a year tickets for individual matches go on sale. Now your membership does not guarantee you a ticket; it guarantees you a place in the queue for a ticket. 
And, and when when this happens, it, it tends to kick off because you know the the, the the websites crash. You end up in huge queues. It it makes a Cado deliveries look like a walk in the park, um, and. Uh, it has caused a lot of resentment, but from Liverpool FC's point of view, uh, it makes a lot more sense. If if, you, if you're selling twenty-seven or thirty thousand match tickets for a home game, th- those those fans are going to be the people that come once or twice a year. Well, what are they going to do? As soon as they get to Anfield, they head for the mega store. They yeah. get the shirt. They get the merchandise, and it's not it's not even a forty-pound spend for the ticket. It's it's 150 quid spend because they've they've topped up on merchandise. Whereas if you compare that to West Ham, if you're a season ticket holder, yeah, you know, what do you do when you get to a match? Well, you, you might buy yourself a pint, a pint. You're not buying any more mm. merchandise. So in terms of horrible word monetization of fans, Liverpool, and this is not a criticism of them because other clubs do it the same. Liverpool have a big tourist fan base. They have a big global fan base, and therefore they make sure that they relieve them as much money as possible because they attract so many more of them on, on an individual match day basis. So, so David and I then have been labouring under the same misconception that so apart from the away fans that have to be accommodated, there are no actual rules that say a certain percentage of tickets have to be available on the day for the casual fans. So you could, so, yeah, Sellers Park, for example, 26,000, say, take the 3,000 out for, we could have 23,000 season ticket holders. There's no yeah. regulation that says you have to have tickets. Oh, okay. No, no, it's, it's, it's down to the club. It, it, it's the club's individual decision. Well, that's really interesting. Cause I think that's one of those things that most football fans listening to this will be going, oh, I didn't know that. That's, that's, that's why we're here. That's the that's sort right. of service we provide. And now a final question comes from Austin. Just... Just Austin, no, no first name, no last name. Austin is in Sydney, Australia, uh, one of the few cities in the world where you always have to say the country. We very rarely say we've got a letter here from Moscow, Russia, but we always say Sydney, Australia. Sid, um, Austin, um, Austin is a, an exiled Ipswich fan, um, and I suspect he may have been listening to last week's discussion about uh, Ipswich and whether they were a good, attractive buy for for new owners, potential new owners. Um, You've touched on this. So, Austin's question, I'll, I'll just read it out rather than try and improvise. I'm not a jazz presenter, am I? I don't know why I just don't look at the piece of paper. It's because I've clearly mixed up two pieces of paper and I'm trying to desperately do that off screen, which is only you looking. And you know me well enough to know I make mistakes, so I don't know why. Anyway, Austin's question. For potential buyers of clubs outside the Premier League, have we seen a shift in terms of which clubs might make more attractive investments? And if so, who would be the biggest climbers? Um, practically every club outside of the Premier League and indeed some in the Premier League are realistically up for sale. Um, Have there been climbers? Yes, because there are some owners who would sell the club for a pound. So we saw Charlton effectively being sold for a pound in January. We discussed that on Thursday. Um, I'm aware, and I can't go any further than this, is that there are some fairly big name clubs who are not too far away from administration. They are they have got genuine issues in, in struggling to pay the wages. Uh, and therefore, if somebody came in and offered a pound for the club, the present owner would say, take it with my blessing, because yeah. that means you're going to pay the next wage bill and the, the next and the wage bill in May and June. Because frankly, I'm, I don't know whether I've got the money to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm asking people for loans. I'm trying to get investors involved in things of this nature. Um, so uh, there are a lot of very attractive clubs. Um, and it is a buyer's market for football clubs as it is for players at present. Now, are these clubs, just to clarify, are these clubs that would have been in trouble anyway, or are these, is this purely coronavirus inflicted? Um, th- th- these clubs, who, 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 the, the whole of the EFL is, is in a precarious position, apart from those clubs which are run well. And, yeah, we'll be mm, we're talking about Luton in a few minutes, one of yeah. the ones who are run well. Um, and uh, I think what it has made is that if you were in a in a danger zone you know you're now you're now totally at the the edge yep. of the the lever of, of the meter in terms of being in the red um it's just accentuated what was already a problematic issue okay you mentioned Luton town so let's move on to this this interview um Gary Sweet, the chief executive of Luton, was very keen to come on and chat to us. Unfortunately, his schedule was so tight, uh, I wasn't available when he was, which didn't seem to bother him one one job, basically. So he was happy to chat to Kieran. So Mrs. Maguire, over there in, in Mayo, I'm just just so you know, I'm not meant to be in this bit. So don't ever go at Kieran for hogging it. I'm not meant to be in this bit. So it's, it's a really interesting interview. Um, take it away. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. So I'm delighted that uh, we're joined today by Gary Sweet, uh, Chief Executive. Is that correct? your correct title, Gary? Owner, uh, Big Cheese, Chief Executive at uh, Luton Town Football Club. <laughs> we call ourselves custodians. You know, we, we're never going to live as long as the, the life of the football club. Thankfully, that, that's that's fantastic, and and it's sort of to get that attitude from from a from a somebody who who's involved at the top end of the game, because it, some as an outside observer, sometimes it seems that they their football clubs are just playthings. Um, so yeah, I think somebody who understands the club from the the position of Luton Town being an institution in in the town in the city uh, is great. Um, so first of all, Gary, how are you and, and how is everybody at Luton in terms of health and uh, support for the local community and uh, you know, the player and managers and all the staff? I'm fine, thank you. And the family's great. Um, apart from a little bit of cabin fever with, with kids in the house. Uh, everybody who, who we, we speak to on a daily basis, I think health is fine. We, we're clearly seeing stories that seem to be getting a little bit closer every day um of fatalities due to due to the virus and you know support our supporters and friends and you know neighbors around the stadium etc all of those things happen around you and and you you get to realize how how real that situation is when it's personal right yeah good good well it, it is it is traumatic times um and uh uh, you know, football football is living in a bubble, but but it has to acknowledge the fact that it's part of a, a bigger society. So I thought we would sort of go through a, a few issues. Um, you, you're in you're in the football pyramid. You're, you're you've done extremely well. You know, Luton has come from non-league to the championship, and that and that to, to me is sort of flown under the radar to a certain extent. Um, how how precarious are finances uh, as far as you're concerned? In the football league, uh, you, you've been now through a, a variety of divisions, and you're now, to a certain extent, with with some pretty big boys, you know, Leeds United, West Brom, Middlesbrough, Forest, and so on. Um, how how are you finding life in the Championship? Um, good, we're enjoying it. I mean, I think many of our supporters would probably say that we're 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 a big boy too, you know, and we were one of the founder members of the Premier League, and I think one of the reasons why that's gone under the radar, that rise from non-league as such, uh, is because you know, most people who um, do recognise Luton as, as probably a top two league football club, um, if you're probably over 30, 35 years old. Um, I think the biggest challenge in that rise is, has been the uh, that scale um, at each step of, um, of, of financial, uh, that financial step up as such. And where most of your, most of our, uh, cost most most football clubs costs are are really about players and you know we're we're taking leaps into divisions that are shorter than players contracts that's always a challenge <laughs> it means you've got to when you put when you put a, a a contract down and you and you and you write in you know as we are if we sign a player now that, that you know that that he might actually uh play in the premier league we've got to know what our premier league budget is then so Two years ago, when we were signing players in League Two, and we we're putting down Championship numbers, it's very, very easy to say, "Well, that doesn't matter. We're not going to get there in, within the two years of your contract." So, um, so actually, you know, but we've been sensible about that. Um, but it's where a lot of clubs do fail. Um, so we have struggled with that, those that staging, um, you know, that upscaling as such. Um, and I think though the downscaling is possibly worse. So we're hoping to avoid that. Right, right. I mean, I, I've looked at the numbers. As you know, I'm, I'm, I enjoy a spreadsheet or two. Uh, looking at the total operational losses in the championship, over £600 million, an average wage bill of £34 million. When you were promoted, did you look at those type of numbers and think, 
oh my God, yeah, this is going to be uh, a, a huge challenge for us? Or was it just the excitement of being promoted and everything that, that went along with that? No, never that. I mean, of course, we got excited as, as fans, as supporters. We are all supporters of the club. Um, but no, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a spreadsheet geek as well. And I mean, I, I, I do I do my, uh, my analysis and, you know, well, we do our analysis. It's not just, just me alone. And, you know, we look at, uh, other clubs' performances, financial performance, and we are really we are just purely determined to ensure that we block out completely uh, what other clubs do. Actually, there is there is a best practice out there, but we we like to think that our own practice is the best practice for us, not for everybody else, maybe not for anybody else, but but our best practice is certainly best for us. Right, and, and what does that best practice involve in terms of? Are you, are you looking long term? Do you have sort of a, a one, three, five year plan, um, or, or how how exactly does that manifest itself? Um, it's purely long term. Uh, I think the real question there is what is long term in football. Some, in some ways, you'd argue two weeks is um, certainly in the last four weeks we've seen we've seen football change beyond recognition. Um, so how can you plan for that? Is impossible. It's, it is impossible to plan for what what's happened recently. Um, but I think in in terms of our long term vision is um, both based upon our ambition so for example two years ago we would have had a two-year plan to get promoted twice knowing that what whatever we sign up to as a contract beyond that period then it fits within within our our, uh, our safe budgets but um, uh, it, it's also just keeping everything on on quite a short leash. We don't really sign players for any more than two years. We 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 rather rely on on uh, quite a dynamic approach to recruitment, um, and try to keep keep ourselves nimble. There, recruitment is absolutely key when in your financial management of you know of your, of your squad budget. Um, so we're we're quite pleased with that. Every time we take that step up, that has to be slightly re-engineered uh, because you're looking at a different um, portfolio of players. Uh, but really, I think our our focus is is yes, look at have a look at what other clubs do up the up the line down the line. Have a look at what other clubs do. Have a look at how how other clubs perform. Maybe learn from some of their their some of the, their best practice. But actually, we can often learn mostly on what they do wrong, um, and and try to avoid those pitfalls. And that's really the only reason why we look at other clubs. Otherwise, it's just about let's do things our way. Um, let let's let's not necessarily follow the sheep within within football. Uh, because I think it gets a lot wrong anyway, uh, and and try to be determined in 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 sticking to that process. Cool. Right. I mean, you mentioned sort of the the sheep, and I understand where you're coming from. Do you, as uh, as an executive of a football club, do you feel under pressure from fans? Because if you take a look at what we seem to have between League One and the Championship, yourselves, Barnsley and Charlton were all promoted last season. You're now occupying the three relegation places. Have the fans bought into your ideal? I mean, certainly the the, the feedback I get from Luton fans on, on social media is that they are totally committed to your business model and, and they understand where you're coming from. Um, there must always be a temptation to, to blow the budget and, and you just have to be disciplined in yourself in, in, in that respect. Well, well firstly, I mean, I, I, I use the word sheep not in a derogatory term. I think there are clubs that, that we, we would we would say are sheep and do merely follow others. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of brilliantly run football clubs out there. And, and you know, so I just want to cover that off and not, and not absolutely annoy everybody in the game because I've got a lot of friends there. So, but, you know, do we do we have any temptation just to blow the budget and, and be over ambitious? Never. No. And do we have, do we feel pressure from supporters? No, not really. No, actually not at all. I think there there's... Um, uh, we've got a great relationship with our support base. I think we that we are supporters ourselves, and you know we want the same thing. And so the own the the most pressure I feel is pressure I put on myself, or the pressure the board might put on me occasionally. Um, you know, the only pressure I, I I think we we are really under is 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 really um, um, self applied, um, and I, I think that uh, yes, our supporters understand that um, we as a club. In this respect, um, are fortunate enough to have a 
dreadful history of financial mismanagement in I say that in in, in this sense because if we hadn't have had those periods of, of in the past 20 years when um, in fact actually as far as, as far as I supported the club I remember you know one of my first memories is is you know I think back in 74 or 5 uh, just a nipper just starting to support the club we had to sell Peter Anderson to to Anderlecht for 250,000 quid to survive you know one of my first messages I had as a supporter of Luton Town was that you know just and and so as as like a you know nine-year-old or I was I was like learning about you know your job almost Kieran here you know this is one of my first lessons in football so um so I think football Luton supporters absolutely understand that um that we can't afford we are not uh, very very wealthy individuals. I say that we, the board, those those wonderful shareholders of, us are, of ours that, that that keep putting their hands in their pockets, they're not um, uh, immensely wealthy individuals. So uh, we're in this together, and that's the theme that that, that we try to run within our culture at the club. Uh, looking at Luton. Uh, I- in in terms of the development of the club, uh, yeah, there has been talk about moving to a new stadium. Could you sort of just keep 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 me up to date in terms of where you are with regards to that at present? Well, actually, this is um, we're we're in a really good place. Actually, so we are uh, we we own our assets, um, which which includes two pieces of land of around 60, 60 acres. Um, those assets have been bought by our shareholders, so we have some internal debt within our shareholders we have two companies under a, under a single holding company um one because the the, the risk profiles financial risk profiles the, the two businesses of football and property development are completely different separate it's completely different we have to separate those so they they don't impact on each other and and there's there's a security there um but uh those board members the same board members of, of Luton football club have effectively loaned money to, for us to be able to buy that that freehold land. Um, so that is ours freehold. It has planning permission. It has now, after three and a half, four years of of challenging, um, we are clear of of any uh, any challenge. It's it's so it's uncontested, um, and we we're free to 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 go. What clearly we what we don't have is is the. 600 odd million to build everything out <laughs> it's not that's not the intention the intention is to uh to clearly develop those plans a little bit further and sell off packages in either in part or full um and the the plans would effectively bring us a football stadium that the shareholders do not need to pay for and supporters don't need to pay for but will be free it will be contained in a, in a, in some kind of freehold form for the football club's use so um so it, it affects and actually you know where the market is at the moment is the major concern you know what's happening to retail in these days what's happening you know so, that, so we've got a number of of things that we have within jurisdiction or in terms of use of status of, of, of within those planning applications um and um but we we do, do have some flexibility there for change if um if when we come out of this this period of calamity that we 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 find ourselves you know looking at an, another use for something then we can do that um so we've got quite a bit of flexibility there too so that's our long-term uh our long-term safety net as such uh, it doesn't solve our short and medium term problems. Of course, we we need to get the football club there to that position. The property company doesn't really have a huge amount of cost, ongoing cost, um, other than the cost of of our consultants to to develop those plans. So it's in a good place. That um, it, it, clearly we're going to see a delay in the process um, through through this, um, but we hope it won't be too long a delay. You know, and we're pleased to see that in other areas, uh, the property the development market is still continuing you know government's plans to continue um with with you know obviously the the big rail contracts the cross rail particularly and um uh an hs2 i think are, are encouraging it means long term that, that 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 market is still going to be be lively and particularly in in the housing sector which is in desperate need particularly in places like luton where we we need we need more residential properties they're all very healthy that's good that's good to hear um in terms of 
yeah, Luton are presently uh, are in the the championship. We've seen the uh, effective shutdown of the lower leagues in Scotland, uh, Belgium, the uh, the Dutch National League that's closed down. Um, and th- there has been talk this week of clubs in League One and League Two um, effectively cancelling the season. Um, I-, I was I was watching Sky Sports this morning with with Jamie Carragher and uh, Gary Neville, and you know, they they were certainly intimating that it was an option which hadn't been really on the table, but does appear to be coming closer and closer. Um, what's your view in terms of this this issue of sporting integrity versus the potential survival? And what do you see as the benefits of closing the season? You know, clearly, as fans, you know, we're all going stir-crazy. We, we're desperate to see some football, but you know, what's your perspective of things? And how do you think that could manifest itself potentially in the Championship? I think you said a lot there in a nutshell, actually. We find ourselves as chief execs of football clubs effectively acting like politicians at the moment. You know, the the government will have a a massive, great big dial in front of it, which will, as we come out of lockdown, they'll need to switch that dial between um, the the, the survival, effectively the economy of of the country um, and and the the public health. So the the safety of of the nation. So um, and that is is something that that will constantly go on. I think we're in the same position here. You know, we I think um, I think from a. Uh, a moral ethical point of view I think it's right to cancel the season probably you know um, as long as the uh, whilst there is any kind of safety risk on on those taking part or if there is any increased resource on the NHS these are the key things that that concern me and I've I've written to the Football League um, to make my point on that that actually as a club we really do not want to play games we don't want to take part in, in in the remainder of the season unless we've got some commitments, we've got some form of comfort in, in terms of that we're not taking testing kits away from the NHS, that, that, that actually we're not putting you know, a further burden on the NHS by, by playing games behind closed doors. Um, but if we've got those um, some element of comfort on that there, particularly if we're playing at Kenilworth Road... Um, you know, then I see no reason why we can't continue. The show must go on. I think there is um, the further down you go, the, down the pyramid you go, there's more of an argument to say that the season could and should be cancelled. I'm not saying I would. I haven't taken part in those League One, League Two debates, so it'd be unfair for me to say what I would do if we were a League One club. But. Um, I would probably err on the side of, of, of cancellation, but I think I, I flip over to, to, to let's keep the show on the road in the championship while we possibly can, as long as those safety issues can be dealt with. And would you be willing to sort of play in a sort of a sterilised hub if, if the EFL say, well, we're going to use three or four uh, grounds in, in the country simply because it's you know, from a from a health and safety perspective, and you know, clearly that does take priority. Um, it, it's going to be a surreal environment, even playing at Kenilworth Road before before an empty crowd. So, would you be willing to go to if everything takes place at St Andrews and uh, you know one in the northwest and one in the southeast and so on? Um, would that be acceptable to you as a in your position? I think more than acceptable. I would prefer, I would prefer it. Um, I think what well, as clubs we have to think about here is how do we you know we we're not experts in this. We we nowhere near. I mean, we how do we set up our stadium um, to manage a behind closed doors game where where people have to socially distance and where you know those not playing and where where you have to have testing environments where you have to have you know, clean environments. We've got a hundred and seventeen-year-old stadium now. You know, so uh, how, you know how to how we get that fit for purpose. It isn't something that that I'm I I should ever be asked a question about. You know, so so actually, I'm all in favour of of actually putting the the remaining games, championship games, in into um you know two or three uh, venues, securing those, making sure that that. You know, in this look, we're we're football, sort of genuine football supporters. We love a live atmosphere. We love a live game. But this is one of those times where you have to switch completely to a broadcast environment. So where where we can we can actually set camera positions up, sixteen camera positions. You can get your LED boards around so you can still sell advertising. Try to look at where areas where we can bring in as much as in, income as possible to recover those losses we're going to make. 
Um, and you can create a little bit of a, a mini tournament around that kind of atmosphere. And I think that's probably the best solution for me. That, that sounds very reasonable. Um, and I think as, as a fan, I, I can't see any fans objecting if your position from an executive is positive. Um, and also it would, of course, re- reduce the the number of outside broadcast camera crews that would be required. So again, from a social distancing point of view, once they get that all set up, you presumably they've got the wherewithal to do a lot of that remotely. Um, uh, so yeah. I think that there's got to be some positives from that. But the most important thing with that, Kieran, as well, that, that if you, you take St George's Park, for example, you can make St George's Park you know, a very, very safe and secure environment for players to, you know, and, and staff to get tested, um, to, you know, to have uh, all medical, uh, uh, their medical needs attended to instantly, immediately on site. You can contain everything within that environment. And that that's the most important thing yep. for me. And uh, absolutely. And it's, it's great to see that the, the health issues are are taking a priority, which is which is completely appropriate. I'm um, just sort of one one final question you've you've been involved in football for a while now you know from from the boardroom perspective um if there was sort of one or two things you'd like to see changed what what would your what would your wish list be um to to make the the, the sport more sustainable um and yeah i'm not not saying changing rules yeah, not not, not any, nothing to do with var of that nature but uh yeah i think there is a concern uh, from many people that uh, perhaps the game in, in the in, in certain leagues has been living beyond its means for a while too long. Uh, certainly, when I look at the numbers and I I go back season by season, I'm going well. It's not it's not 2019 that's the problem. You know, if if I go through the whole of the decade of uh, of what's been happening, um, you know, the, the level of spending ha- uh, in in terms of player costs has exceeded uh, income certainly in in the championship. So, how how do you think is there a solution, or ultimately because of the diverse nature of ownership, is it is that just unrealistic wish wishfulness on my behalf? Well, I think it. I think it was unrealistic, and I, I mean, the, the, we, look, we've always harboured um, thoughts on on how football could be improved at Luton. I mean, we we are. I think in in many ways the the game is is really on a on a um, a very very fast track to becoming quite morally bankrupt in many ways. Actually, in I think I think it, it it needs to clean its act up. Um, I think financially, as we're seeing now, it's probably not far off being financially bankrupt unless changes happen and so we we're um the one thing um not that we should ever be thankful of a, of a virus pandemic hitting our country but the one positive you can take out of this is that this is a genuine opportunity for us to completely reset the game um and you know, you know there are clubs looking at it and discussing it there are the league do have to take it on board um there are so i think i think apart from the obvious um Things of you know uh, the distribution of wealth coming into the game has to be more even spread. It has to be fairer for, for the pyramid to survive. Survive the one thing that we have in the English game that I think every other nation is jealous of is that pyramid. No other country plays football at the sixth or seventh step down, where you have players that are professional. You have players that are earning the amount of money they are. Which isn't wrong at that level necessarily, by the way, um, but you have supporters and communities following clubs at that level um, that are so important fabric elements of their societies and communities. And so, you know, this is the one thing in every other country that that they're so jealous of, and it's it's the one thing that we have to protect. And a redistribution of funding throughout will seek to protect that, and that's one thing we've got to try and take on board. Of course, we're going to need the Premier Leagues. Uh, assistance to do that but the the other thing as well there's a lot of in a lot of talk i mean look at the fair financial fair play and, and, and profit and sustainability um, or loss and sustainability levels that are, i would say that, that are in the championship at the moment it's a basket case of a league absolute basket case we you know when we get promoted from league one to the championship um for us to be to, to be looking at the, the stark reality of 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 how clubs are overspending is just preposterous and you know they know my view they know our view on this it is absolutely preposterous and maybe right now you know they're, they're beginning to rue the decisions of overspending because that, that that's going to really hurt them at the moment on that basis you know i would um absolutely look at 
bringing in a form of salary cap or budget cap on on players throughout the leagues, throughout our three leagues, I would um, I would absolutely look to. I wouldn't necessarily stop anybody you know from from overspending if if they if they can. Uh, um, if they can genuinely afford to do that, but they would have to put down warrants for if they're signing players on a four-year contract. It's not just about this year; it's about the four years. And I would perhaps, if if they do go over a budget, you know, bring in some kind of uh, you know some kind of levy that gets redistributed amongst other clubs that enables that division to be more sustainable together. Um, and that way there's there's a little bit more harmony within within the group as well. I mean, the one thing I, I, I have said is the further up the levels you go, the less friendly the football gets. We loved our time in the conference because of that, you know, that everybody feels like they're, they're in it together. Whereas right now, um, you know, the championship, I think it's it's improved slightly, but but there was a time where it's actually it's, they were tearing each other apart. You know, championship meetings were... Were, were you know were just dreadful you know not quite food fights but you know it's it was it wasn't a pleasant environment here and you know and and um and so you know just if there was that redistribution of 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 overspending then that would probably create a little bit more harmony too and and I'd scrap VAR you scrap VAR okay <laughs> great here um Gary thank you so much for your time I'm hugely appreciate it. We'll be putting this out soon. Um, just hoping the technology has worked. As 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 we are, myself and Kevin are quite legendary in our inability to do anything correctly. Um, but thank you again, and uh, stay safe, stay indoors, and uh, good luck to everybody for Luton for the rest of this season. You know, because ultimately, you know, I'm sure you want to you want to see your lads playing football again as a fan. Well, we believe actually we would have. We, we honestly believe we, we would have and will stay up. You know, um, I think I think we we're on a really good run of form actually, and we have got a great bunch of lads. Um, I just need them to 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 accept a salary cut now. That's all, and they they'll be be heroes in my eyes again. But I mean, we've got a great bunch of lads. They they need to uh, they need to play nine more games, and I, I'm I'm I think we're very very confident we'll be we'll be here next year. Terrific. Well, good luck to everybody, and thank you so much. And just that, and actually, just a word to thank you because you, you know, you, you, um, that one of the questions you asked earlier about how we monitor other other clubs. You're a very, very useful resource for that. So we really appreciate uh, appreciate your your tweets and your knowledge. So so thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Cheers. Thank you, Kieran. That was really, really interesting. Really honest, and I, I think as well, what was fascinating was his his long term approach, wasn't it? Um, very much so. You know, he wants Luton Town to be around in 5, 10, 20 years um, by building a new stadium. You know, they can increase capacity. They can increase income. Um, and in his approach is that he's, he's a fan. And as a fan, you want the club to be there on your dying day. And, and that's his approach, too. Yep. He's not gambling. He's not twisting on 19 like some other owners. Mm. Um, and, and he didn't name anybody, but it's quite clear that there were uh, yeah, there were practices which he didn't particularly approve of in some of the other clubs. Um, I, I've got to say, I, I was very impressed. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what I said to him that, that influenced any decisions, but within 24 hours, he'd sack the manager. <laughs> well, do you know what, Kieran? Within 24 hours of any positive view, I'm, I'm making irrational decisions all over the place. I don't know what it is. You get in people's minds. You've got a bloke in Blackburn called Entwistle who's doing his own spreadsheets now. Um before we finish, I was only half joking when I said at the start that people do want to talk to you. And I, I'm, I'm actually quite proud of the fact that people in football seem to think we're giving not just the fan a voice, but certainly people who work in financial administration seem to understand that you're there to maybe articulate things that even they can't do in a sense. And also you've got slightly more freedom to name names than they have. So it's it's good that you're helping people who are having a really hard time making ends meet with a football club and trying to get our clubs through this situation can come to you for a bit of spreadsheet fun and games. Well, I wouldn't quite go that far, but what what was very clear was that it is a tough job because yeah. you've got no money coming in. You've got a wage bill to pay and, uh, you know, you've you've got the responsibility of, of being the, the, the club chief executive at this very testing time. And we, everybody agrees and Gary was very much too uh, keen to, to, to get this message across is that health matters football mm. is a non-issue at present yep absolutely well on that note um 
this is meant to be the shorter pod, the Monday pod, but in the situ- in the circumstances, people need something to listen to, so it doesn't it doesn't really matter, does it? Those those days of listening on the tube, they're gone <laughs> for the moment. Well, I can't wait to get back to the fifteen minutes so, so people can moan about the fact it's it was, it was finished before I got to Charing Cross. Um, <laughs> the Price of Football is a DAP Dip production. If you have questions for us, and remember Mondays are our special question day, except when we get uh, clever interviews like this one. Uh, questions at priceoffootball.com and we will see you again on Thursday. Take care. Thank you. And kind of a special shout out for Chris, because uh, he's a big fan of the show and his mum and dad live next door to me. Um, and he went and bought me some Marks and Spencer's Giant Buttons, which are my favourite <laughs> chocolate. And he left because uh, he because he, we, we live too far away from M&S. So we, we, yeah, we don't go. We don't. Uh, go go far outside of the house these days as a result of the lockdown and he'd heard they were my favorite and he's brought me some and thank you so much chris well done chris that's very kind of you i'll drop you my address and see if they can go through the post not my favorite but let's let's not thanks chris thanks kieran cheerio folks the price of football Bye, son, for the